0: So we're going to study First uh, John, Letter First John. Um, we just finished the Gospel of John, and there's no connection between finishing the Gospel of John and studying First John, other than that's what we're going to do next. So, yeah. Except the, the one difference is that this is when all of the most of the Christians are dead. Well, that, yeah. So th- this is definitely further down the road. So. Um, on Wednesday night, we had a discussion about what we should study next, and uh, there were a lot of really good ideas. And I think one of the things that came out of it was, before we tackle another very large book, we had uh, we had well over a year going through the Gospel of John, and uh, before we tackle another large book, we want to take a smaller one. And uh, there was a, one of the requests was that we consider First John. It's a it's a, a shorter. Uh, shorter work, and also because of the focus on love that's in the book, uh, in the letter. So I want to, uh, but actually there are a lot of things in, in the letter here too. So love is one of the things it talks a lot about, but there are many other things. So uh, this is, there's a, it, hit, it hits on many different, different subjects, and as always doing expository uh, teaching, we will touch on things that neither you nor I ever gave any thought to to discussing, (laughs) because it's there, okay? And yet, this is the same job that knew Jesus. That's right. I'm going to talk about that in a minute here. So, uh, one of the questions with the letters specifically that that I always want to know Mm -hmm. is, why was this letter written? What's the driving purpose behind the letter? And sometimes, like, we, we went through 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is addressing a number of problems that Paul saw in the church, And so, uh, so there or Hebrews is written because of facing uh, Christians are facing persecution. They've got to persevere. So the the question that I have, and I'm not going to give you an answer right now. You're going to have we're all going to have to sort this one out together. Is why was this letter written, and what were the major themes in it? So usually in an introduction, you'll say here's why the letter was written, and here are the major themes. I'm just going to throw the question out there. What was on John's mind before we rush to make personal application too much, just to stop and think, all right, why is he writing this? Uh, what are the things that he's hitting? And, and, and we, don't, we only have one side of the story. We have the letter that he's writing, so we have to stop and think about it. Why is he saying this? What's he, what's he uh, going to go after? And unfortunately, we can't ask John, why did you write this letter? So uh, I'm reminded of. I read a book uh, a long time ago called How to Read a Book. And, uh, you know, the question is, people ask me, don't you already know how to read a book, Chuck? Why are you reading as an adult how to read a book? Is because it was, I want to be a better reader. Mm-hmm. And in, a, in How to Read a Book, it said, it I made mean, a difference between an active reader and a passive. An active reader is someone who is reading and asking questions of the author. And now if if you and I are having a discussion, or if somebody's giving a lecture, at the end of the lecture you can ask questions and the presenter can give you answers. The difference when you're reading a work of someone who's been dead for close to 2,000 years is you ask the questions and then you have to dig in and find the answers out. So... This uh, this is the challenge. So that, I think that's we're going to be asking questions like why did you write this book and what are the main themes in it? Uh, what's driving uh, th- this this letter here? And then and then obviously after understanding that why what he's addressing, uh, we can stop and think about all right how can this possibly apply to us? So that's something that well, as we're going through the letter, uh, we want to stop and, and think about periodically what's what's his concern here what's going on in the church at that point in time now one of the things i realized after going through the gospel of john was the last several lessons we talked about what happened to some significant characters in the story we talked about what happened to joseph of arimathea from historical accounts who was there at the burial of jesus we talked about what happened to Thomas, who was there, who was the one who said, "I'm not going to believe this, even if I see it. I need to stick my fingers in the holes in his hand and stick my hand into his side." So, what, what happened to Thomas? What happened to Peter? He was hung upside down. Pe- well, yeah. What happened to Peter? When Peter was, um, uh, Jesus told Peter. That to feed my lambs, feed my sheep, and he'll say someone's going to stretch out your hands and lead you somewhere you don't want to go. Well, what actually happened to Peter? So, as you know, as Adam pointed out, we talked about that. So, we talked about what happened to Joseph of Arimathea. We talked about what happened to Peter. We talked about what happened to Thomas. One person we didn't talk about very much. What Which happened to is John what happened, happened to John? That's right? So that's an obvious question. We never got around to that. So here we are. I thought. We missed that before. This would be a good opportunity to ask the question, what happened What happened to John? So there is some history about John and what happened to him. So I'm curious, what happened to to, to these apostles? So uh, Eusebius, who wrote Ecclesiastic History, it's a famous history of the church, and he gives, he's writing around the year 325, he's a bishop in Caesarea, a church historian, read a lot of the things that were available to him that aren't available to us now. Some are. and so so he wrote a history and and he this is what he had to say about what happened to John. And he says, in this persecution, which is re- he's referring to in the discussion, this is a persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire, he said, it's handed down by tradition that the apostle and evangelist John, who was yet living in consequence of his testimony to the divine Word, was condemned to dwell on the island of Patmos. And then he goes on to explain not only the Christians support this, the persecution of Diocletian and the exile of John, but he said also the pagan writers who were hostile to the Christian faith all attest to the same historical facts of this great persecution. And he's speaking about the pagan uh, historians. He says, these also have accurately noted the time. For it happened, according to them, in the 15th year of Domitian, which would correspond to about 95 or 96 A.D. So he says John's still living. You know, the the, the idea is the other apostles have died. Now Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. So John has gone out, is in in, uh, exile. He's he's, he's gone to the west. He's gone into what's now Turkey, will be called Asia Minor, and then he is exiled to Patmos, during the, the 15th year of Domitian. And then he goes on, he explains, he said, After Domitian had reigned 15 years, Nerva succeeded the government. The Roman Senate decreed that the honors of Domitian should be revoked. Those who've been unjustly expelled to return to their homes and have their goods restored. This is the statement of the historians of the day. It was then also that the Apostle John returned from his banishment in Patmos and took up his abode in Ephesus, which, of course, Ephesus is still a well-known uh, city in modern-day Turkey, according to the ancient tradition of the church. So that's what uh, Eusebius says, that uh, this, these, these things happen. And then uh, Eusebius, later on, he, he cites a bishop of the church of Ephesus who lived earlier writing that the Apostle John had died in Ephesus and was buried there. So, so that's, that's what we have in history about the Apostle John. Now, regarding the letter of 1 John, well, you say, well, obviously that was written by the Apostle John, but Eusebius talks about this as well. He says that, uh, he says in, in his day, 325, he says there was there were people who were questioning who wrote, the book of Revelation, whether it was the Apostle John or, or another John, and he said there were there were questions about by at least some about Second and Third John, but he said everybody in the church from the earliest time acknowledged that John the Apostle was the author of the Gospel of John and First John. He says this was never never in dispute, and he a quote from Eusebius. He said. Besides the Gospel of John, his first, epistle, his first epistle is acknowledged without dispute, both by those of the present day and also by the ancients. So he said this was this was never never in question. Now, this is the the this is uh, the quotes I've given from Eusebius are from his Ecclesiastical History, Book Three, and in chapters eighteen uh twenty uh, twenty-four and thirty-one. So it's uh if somebody wants to go go and, and check this out if you don't don't have don't have to believe what I'm telling you. So so let's let's dive in to the first chapter here in first john chapter one. I'm gonna read the first four verses after that background. So you think about this. If John was in exile at Patmos in the year 95 or 96, Jesus died around the year 33, and assuming even that John was, let's say, a teenager, a young man, at the time that Jesus died, this puts John, obviously, as a very old man. And and Eusebius makes the point that he was... He was uh, the last of the apostles, really the last surviving apostles. that uh, So he was, at that point in time, he had to be at least in his mid to late 70s, maybe in his 80s. So he, he died a very old man, uh, somewhere around the year 100 AD, about uh, 70 years after time Jesus. So he lived long after Jeru- the complete destruction of Jerusalem. So uh, uh, in First John chapter 1, let's read verses 1 to 4. And and having just gone through the Gospel of John, this may remind you of certain things in the Gospel. He starts off, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you, that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, and that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Or in some translations it will say, I think the... uh, uh, some something will say so that your joy may be, be so our joy may be full. So uh, right right off right off the beginning, that which was from the beginning. That reminds me of the the opening line, which is, in the beginning was the word, uh, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So he talks about that which was from the beginning concerning the word of life. So. It's, uh, he's, that reminds me of, of, the, of the beginning of the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. And then there's something that reminds me of the end of the Gospel of John. He says, That which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. Mm-hmm. So what does that make you think of? Mm-hmm. That makes me think of when Je- in John chapter 20 near the end of the Gospel, where Jesus appears to Thomas, and Thomas says, even if I see it, I won't believe it. And he says, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a ghost. Uh, touch and see. Put your fingers in my hands. Put your hand in my side. So, so John is emphasizing the point here that Jesus was physically raised from the dead and we touched his body after he was raised with our own hands. So there's some other things after here. He's, he's, he's saying this for a reason. There's some other things that he's talking about later on in in the letter that uh, that suggests that maybe there were some people who were getting a little shaky about this, Mm -hmm. about Jesus being physically raised from the dead. He says, you know, we saw it and we handled it ourselves. And uh, Jesus told Thomas in John chapter 20, reach out your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. So, uh, uh, and, and this was, Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 15, resurrection of the, of the dead. If you don't believe that the dead are going to be raised up, then Jesus wasn't raised up. And if Jesus wasn't bodily raised from the dead, then the whole thing is, is useless. The whole faith uh, is, is, is meaningless, that this is the foundation of the whole faith, is the bodily resurrection of Jesus, I had a an interesting discussion with an old friend we got together and this was someone who had been a strong Christian at one point in time and he got involved with a group that was uh, I would say twisting the scriptures to push a particular agenda and he recovering from the bad experience that he had with a Christian group, he was just reeling with his, in terms of his own personal faith of you know, all this stuff I was taught, is this true or not? And uh, I was trying to explain to him, looks, you know, half the things you were taught were true and there's a lot of things that weren't true and you need just like a pile of spaghetti, you need to take the process of sorting out okay, this was right but then but this was not right. It's a, it's a, you know, you got to put the effort in. You just can't take, take or leave the whole thing. You've got to find out what's true. And so what he'd been doing, so he, he, in his heart, he, be, he kind of wanted to believe, but he was, he was shut down based on this really bad experience that he had, and he was, so. You know, like a lot of people do, he just started searching around on the internet. And to me, searching around on the internet for truth is kind of like diving into a dumpster. Is like, hey, you know, you might you might find something that uh, is is good food in there, but you're going to find a lot of garbage in there as well. Honestly, so I mean, I've, I've got I, I apply that to myself as well as everybody else. So he's just searching around the internet looking for whatever, and you can find whatever on the internet. So he, he found a. I think it was a liberal, well-known author and scholar, and he was telling me he'd been listening to what what this guy was saying, and this guy was saying that listen, Jesus is not the only way to God. There are many ways to God, and Jesus spiritually rose from the dead, but didn't actually bodily raise right, raise from the dead. So he was he was explaining maybe what if maybe Jesus just kind of spiritually manifested himself uh, afterwards and the disciples had this uh, you know positive experience and there are many roads to God and they all roll up under one giant umbrella and uh, you know I kind of want to believe this but if somebody else believes that that's okay too and I understand because he he was in a group where they said look our our tiny little group of people are the only Christians on the face of the earth and everybody else is lost and uh, so he swung to the other direction. Well, maybe everybody's, everybody's saved. And I said, no, you, you can't do that. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I pointed out that passages like this, like the one that we just read. We've handled with what we have handled with our own hands, what we have seen with our eyes. And... Uh, I, I, we looked at the passage on Thomas where, where he says, look, st- stick your fingers in my hands and put your hand in my side. Uh, in Luke 24, there's, there's another passage where Jesus appears. Luke 24, let's uh, start reading in verse 36. Because he wanted to believe in Jesus because it made him feel better. But... He had a hard time believing that this is the only way and that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. He wanted to spiritualize it. Mm. Luke 24, starting in verse 36, it says, Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, Peace to you. So Jesus appearing after after resurrection to the apostles. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed they had seen the Spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. Mm. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still didn't believe for joy and marvel, he said, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. He took it and ate in their presence. So, I mean, I presented this to my friend. I said, look, I'm sorry, but you can't believe this, that he just kind of spiritually somehow rose from that. I said, what about the tomb? I said, people on both sides, the Christians and the Jews both said that the tomb was empty. Where did the body go? Okay, Jesus physically raised from the dead, and it was really his body, and this is exactly the point that John is making. No, he physically rose from the dead. So if somebody says somebody somebody says, I believe in Jesus, I'll try to take it the next step. Say, do you believe that he physically rose from the dead, that it was his body that came from the doom? He was bodily raised from the dead. And You'd think everybody would say yes to that, but a lot of times they don't. And this is, this is the foundation to start Start from this point here. Do you really believe this? Uh, let, let's continue in First in, uh, John chapter 1. We'll read verse 5 to the end of the chapter. This is the message which we've heard from him and declared to you, that God is light, in him is no darkness at all. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So, one word I notice that appears an awful lot of times in this statement is the word if. Okay? If. There are many promises that are contained in the scripture Sometimes they're conditional promises. If you do this, then I'll do that. Okay, and and there are several conditional promises. They're absolute promises of God that we can fully count on, but they're conditional. You know, there are a lot of people in this country who believe in Jesus. Who believe you can't lose your salvation. A Christian can't lose your salvation. They believe that when you become a Christian, all your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven regardless. That that's it. That it's a guarantee. And and the teaching is based on the idea of Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sins, which is absolutely the truth. And he, and he rose from the dead. And Jesus said, no one can snatch you out of my hands. Okay, Those are all true. So... No one can snatch you out of my hands. Can you jump out of his hands? It says, nobody can snatch you out of the boat, but can you, can you dive off the boat? You know, does, that, does that mean that if uh, so you're on the boat and the boat's going from Boston to London, uh, and it says, look, you know, if you stay on the boat, you're going to make it to London. But what if you get drunk and dive off the side of the boat? You could die. (laughs) You could die. If the boat doesn't turn around and pick you up, you're going to drown in the ocean. You're not going to make it. So you should feel secure if you're on the boat. But you shouldn't be reckless if you're on the boat. And that's what he says here. He says, If We, and who's he writing to here? He's writing to this is first John is written to Christians, people who already believe and they've had their sins forgiven. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. Okay. We don't have if we're walking in darkness, we don't have fellowship with him any longer. Okay? It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. So it's a wonderful promise, but it's a conditional promise. It says, if we walk in the light. Well, what if we don't walk in the light? What if we walk in the darkness after we become Christians? We go back to the old life. What's going to happen to us? Well, it's the same point that Paul's making in 1 Corinthians. He says, look. All those people in the story of the, the, of the Exodus story, they were all baptized. They all ate the spiritual food. They all drank the spiritual drink. And they drank from the rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. They drank from Christ. So clearly these people are baptized, eating the spiritual food, drinking the spiritual drink. They're drinking from Christ. These are not unbelievers. Okay. But it says God was not pleased with most of them and they fell because of, of their sin. So this is a warning to us. This is Paul is making that point there. John makes the exact same point here. He says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. So it depends on us. We have to walk in the light. We can't dive off the ship. Even though you've been baptized or eating the spiritual food and drink, If you dive back into a life of sin, back into the old life, you're not going to make it. Your sins, he will not cleanse you of your sins. Okay? Now, he also says, so so this is, this is, uh, I'd say, some Christians will say, well, Chuck, everybody knows this. Other Christians will say, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that I could lose my salvation? You mean to tell me that the way I live is going to have a bearing on my eternal destiny? So just look at this, what he's saying here, and ask yourself the question, what does John think? Not what does Chuck think, what I think is is, is really irrelevant. And, and these, as I mentioned, these, these statements are addressed to Christians. And he uses the imagery here of light and darkness and this also goes back to the gospel of John. It reminds me of what Jesus said in John 3. This whole, you know, it says if we walk in the light or if we walk in the darkness. And he's using this light and darkness to talk about two totally different ways of life. What does it mean to walk in the light? And Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3. Let's look at that. John chapter 3 verse 19. verse 19 to 21 Jesus and this is the condemnation the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed but he who does truth comes into the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they've been done in God and this is this is what happens you know we, we uh uh you turn the light on, and the cockroaches, the mice, whatever whatever is in your house is not supposed to be there is going to scamper and scurry away. It's going to hide. The bad, the bad actors who are in trouble are going to hide. And as Jesus says, it's the same thing. The light has come into the world, and the people who love darkness because their deeds are evil, who don't want to repent, they flee, and they want to stay in the darkness. But he says that... Uh, those who come into the light, who are willing to expose their evil deeds and come into the light, come out of the darkness, uh, he says that uh, they are the ones that God's going to bless. He who does the truth comes into the light. So this is the the light and darkness idea. The light and darkness theme is also talked about. Acts chapter 26 is verse we... that... uh, I talk about it a lot because I think it's a, a powerful passage. Acts 26, when Paul is retelling his conversion, what Jesus told him. It's a beautiful picture of what, what evangelism is really all about. It's not just, not just bringing people to believe. In Acts chapter 26... Jesus says to Paul after he appears to Paul, and Paul's retelling the story of his conversion, he says, Jesus says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. They may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who were sanctified by faith in me. So this is what is calling people out of the darkness to come into the light, to forsake their evil ways, to confess their sins, and to repent of them. Also, 1 Thessalonians. Paul talks about darkness and light there. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 1. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. For you yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. When they say peace and safety, suddenly sudden destruction comes on them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let's watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love the helmet of of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you were also doing. So that's what he's saying. He's, he's appealing to the Christians. He says, you're not you're sons of the light. You're not of the darkness. So don't go back to living the life of the darkness. And he uses this, this uh, he, he uses like a poetic expression. He says, look at the things that people do at night. They go out and get drunk and they, they, they get involved in all, the, all this sin. Uh, we're people who are we need to be uh, not uh, kind of bottom dwellers not spiritually living and living in the darkness of night we need to be uh, people of the day we need to be staying awake we need to be vigilant watching and prayerful and uh, sober minded and not getting not getting drunk and sleeping like uh, a lot of people do at night so uh, that, that's what he's talking about. This is a battle between light and darkness. That The Christians have been called out of darkness into light. Evangelism is calling people out of sin and darkness to come into the light. Amen. It's to liberate them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then when we are in the light, we got to make sure we don't turn back into the darkness. Paul also says, I'm sorry, John also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, if we confess our sins... Let's take a look at that. So he starts off talking a lot about sin. Verse 8, he says, If we we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is another if statement. He says, If you say, oh, I've never sinned. says you're a liar. uh, You're deceiving yourself. There's no truth in you. But if you admit your sins and you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So our sins are cleansed when we're baptized, but he continues to cleanse us of our unrighteousness if we walk in the light and we confess our sins. That's that's what he's saying here. There's a condition here. So let me ask you a very direct and personal question. I want you to answer this in your own heart. When was the last time you confessed any sin? So... If you say, you know, it it may be that if you say, well, I don't have any sin to confess, John says you're a liar. I'm not saying that. That's what he says. All right. So if you've been sinning, have you confessed your sin? Do you confess your sin or do you hide it, shove it under the rug, and live in the darkness? Because that's what he says. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's turn to James chapter 5. You're probably thinking, wait a minute, Chuck. We, we're supposed to read 1 John because we want to talk about love. So what's this? Yeah. This is what John's talking about. This is He's talking about if we confess our sins. He's talking about living Righteous lives, walking in the light. We can't go back in the darkness. So, in James chapter 5, verse 13, James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faithful will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. Does this sound like a, verse 16, does this sound like a suggestion? Good idea? Or, or is this something that he expects us all to do? He says, confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. So, uh, you so, said, well, I confess my sin to God. Well, he says, confess your... James says, confess your sin to one another. Um, now, I've seen a lot of damage done when people confess their sins because well, tell, well, I've seen situations where somebody confesses their sin to somebody who has a problem with gossip and slander. Okay, I've seen what happens is that it, all of a sudden people start talking... Oh, do you know, so-and-so got involved in this sin, so-and-so got involved in that sin. And, and so, uh, that's, that's a bad thing. And some people, because of bad experiences of what happened when they confessed their sin to somebody else, they concluded, well, I'm never going to do that again. Okay, Confess your sin to one another. I mean, if I'm going to confess my sin to, a, to, 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 to someone, it's going to be a brother, and it's going to be someone that I respect will keep a confidence. Somebody who can hold a secret. Somebody who, if you tortured him, wouldn't if the government called him on a witness stand, he would say, I'm sorry, but I can't say anything. I can't, this is a brother confesses sin and confidence to me and I can't say anything because this is this is before God. Somebody who has that kind of commitment to... Uh, to keeping a confidence, to keeping a trust. So, maybe if you've had a bad experience confessing your sin to somebody else, or uh, that that you don't want to do that. The other thing thing I've seen happen bad is somebody confesses their sin, and the person says, well, you know, we're all sinners, we all fall short of the grace of God, and, you know, no big deal. So, I mean... Is that helping somebody? Is, is that, was, was that what Jesus or, or John the Baptist uh, uh, did? Is that what the apostles did? No, I think we, we want to be we, I don't want to be harsh or destructive with somebody, but I want to speak the truth to somebody what they help? If, if a person's not convicted, if a person is just just saying something but they have no conviction that they need to repent of the sin, then you know I feel like I need to say something respectfully. And and uh, uh, with 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 wisdom and tact, the, the the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of wisdom and counsel. Amen. And uh, we need to have the we need to have the Spirit of God. But uh, every person in this room, every person hearing this, you need to have a conviction. I need to confess my sin, and I need to find somebody I trust. I know people who, who found somebody on the other side of the world that they trusted. Yeah. And when they were struggling with sin, they would, you know, six or seven time zones away, they would say, well, I know I can trust this person. I know they're not going to blow it off and, and, and call, call that person up. Um, you know, the other thing I remember going through Genesis with the story of, of Cain and Abel, and, and what if Cain said, well, you know, hey, am I my brother's keeper? I, I just, I'm just minding my own business here. I think we don't want to be busy bodies. We want to be concerned about how our brothers and sisters are doing. Twice within the last couple of months, I was just about to say goodbye to a brother. You know, somebody's getting on an airplane or we're, we're having coffee together. We're about to take off. And I, I just have this feeling, you know. I need to ask this brother about this particular sin in his life and that he could be I think he may be struggling with in his life because I know he struggled with in the past and he didn't bring it up to me but if I'm a brother who's looking out for my brother Satan is 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 around there like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour and he's devouring people all the time so so I asked, in both cases, I asked the brother, hey, how has it been going with purity in your life, with sexual purity? How's it been going with whatever, internet pornography, or how's it been going with this, how's it been going with that? And uh, I'll just say I was very glad that I asked the question. It gave me an opportunity to find, and, and both times the brother's response was, um, I really appreciate that you asked the question, I was thinking about maybe bringing it up, but blah blah blah. You know, Satan doesn't want you people to bring it up. They just want them to confess their sins. He doesn't want them to come out into the light. But they both both times they appreciated it, and they you know they expressed that no one asks these questions or they're very rarely asked. So if we love our brothers and sisters, and we're aware that we're all there's a, there's an enemy outside the camp who's ready to destroy us. But I've seen so many men's lives destroyed by secret sin. and they're lead, you know basically they're leading double lives. they're 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 church leaders, they're active in the ministry and everything else. And then all of a sudden, boom, something blows up and there's adultery or something like that. And what the problem was that in the beginning, the person didn't have a conviction. I'm, I'm being tempted. I need to confess my sin and my temptation. I need to have brothers that I trust that I can do this with. Otherwise, you know, their families fall apart. Their, their kids their kids uh, can't stand them. It goes, tremendous destruction. There's an old Christian saying, I don't know if it was Tertullian or who it was, he said, it's easier to kill the cub than the full-grown lion. Okay, And he's talking about sin. That when something is at the temptation level, it's best to kill it, to drive the stake through it right there, and kill it there before it just before it just completely takes over a person's life and destroys them. So, I just want to encourage you know for, for me and everybody else here is to have a conviction about the importance of confessing our sin, not only confessing it to God, but as James says very specifically, confess your sin to one another. That doesn't mean to everybody, but confess it to somebody who's a mature Christian who, who cares about you and whatever the sin is. You know, for, for men, sexual temptation is, is all around us. It's, it's, a, it's a big thing. So, you know, lust or internet pornography or, or whatever whatever other sins it leads into, but also other sins that are common. Lying, deceit of any type. Or fits of rage or hatred in your heart, other sins like that, you know, sins where, where your conscience is bothering you. You look, you sit down before God and stop and think. Okay, is there anything that God's displeased in my life right now? You know, to, 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 to confess your sin and, and come into the light. In the uh, Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, in the in the uh, in the New King James, it says. Uh, uh, he who conceals something like he who conceals a sin will not prosper whoever confesses and renounces it finds mercy. so this is a there's tremendous blessing from coming into the light that's what Jesus is talking about. those who love the truth come into the light so uh, so many wonderful promises and and blessings are available to us that John talks about in the first chapter of first John but there if, if you walk in the light, if you confess your sins to one another. Okay. And, and and so we can have absolute confidence in the promises of God, but we've He's left a part for us to do, to, to see to take hold of. So I think uh if there's anything in your light in your own life where you're in the darkness, and this is the first thing that John talks about before talking about mm-hmm. love. He's first thing he talks about is sin walking in the light, confessing our sin, because he knows that this is always going to be a struggle for Christians. It was back then, and it is right now. That uh, we we must be walking in the light, we must be people in the light, and, and evangelism is not about uh, joining our club. It's about getting people out of darkness and into the light. That's what Jesus told Paul. Uh, so we'll stop there for today. Amen.